Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Yeah, so I believe what happened is that either Steve Kramer or Paul Holes had heard from Peter Headley that, so Peter Headley was the detective in San Bernardino, that we had solved the Lisa Jensen case. And so Paul then called me on the phone and asked me if I would be interested in in helping him on a cold case that he had. He didn't tell me what the cold case was, just asked, you know, would I be interested in working on a cold case? And I said, sure. That's awesome. That was the uh, the jumping off point. Yeah, of course. Uh, right. I, I know, Steve, it's awesome work. Absolutely. And uh, I knew that it was very nebulous how it started out in California. And all of a sudden we had this vacuum where a Golden State killer happened. And in fact, I've heard people brief that this is the very first case. And I said, nah, it just didn't happen one day. Somebody had done some background work and I thought that was the case. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm glad to know that rather. And you see on the, the bottom right hand part of the graphic, it says, how did Bear Brook go to Golden State killer? And that's pretty Heads up ball playing, as I guess they would say, that, that break from the one to the two. Do you mind speaking well, the, a bit? Well, the connection was Contra Costa County because Rasmussen was arrested in Contra Costa County. Paul Holes was in Contra Costa County. And of course, Peter Headley was involved with the arrest with Rasmussen. So they all knew each other. And so, of course, when we solved who Lisa was, Peter Headley was bragging to everybody that we had solved it. And so he would tell anybody who was listening. So, of course, one of the people listening was Paul Holes. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I'm fond of saying that brilliance exists in, in so many different enclaves out there, small police departments or an ME's office, a coroner's office. And it's just that dogged determination that somebody brings something together. And they seem to find these like-minded people that are just savage and they're willing to, to bend some sinew and get out there and solve these things. So um, in one of your previous presentations to one of the societies, I believe, out there, you mentioned who the team was. Do you mind reiterating that for us? Sure. So with Steve Kramer from the FBI, he was in the L.A. field office. And with him was Melissa Parasol. Uh, she's now, I think, in the Boston field office. By the time, was in L.A. And then we had Paul Holes and Monica Sazowski in the Sacramento DA's office. Um, so that was the team. That was Paul. And uh, so the people in, in the Sacramento DA's office was Cook Campbell and Monica Sazowski. So, yes, yeah, so there were six of us. That's awesome. Sorry to put you on the spot on that. It's uh, just, um, you know, this is a piece of history that won't be repeated and how uh, this was able to be cobbled together. And 63 days later, you got a person in custody. I grew up, I'm fond of saying, like the dark night. I was born into this. My mom was a crime scene technician and saw the the frustration and the work that was done on the Adam Walsh case and several others. I I think I've said before that I've had classmates that were murdered and one's unsolved, one they had the wrong person, things like that. So uh, it always resonated with me. And I just, as somebody jokingly said to me, I didn't have a a chance. So I fell right into it. Yeah, right. So I have that passion to drive that same thing and maybe propagate this a little bit more as well. That's why I tried to um, get a good understanding of it back when I was up in the Baltimore division. But um, I I always wondered how that team was put together and what were the steps that actually came to place. I knew the Contra Costa connection was was strong in there. 
63 days later, and I think Paul Holes had been working at 22 years, the East Area Rapist, mm-hmm. Golden State Killer, amazing work. Oh, it's always amazing to me that there's all these puzzle pieces that have already been assembled, and they, they've all been put together, but there's just always just a couple of missing ones. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, somebody else comes along and mentions something, or a new technology is developed, and all of a sudden those last pieces are put together and they can solve the case. So on that light, Barbara, what do you think was kind of the one or two major events or, or items that really helped solve the, the Golden State Killer case? Um, well, there was actually one, one thing that happened, which was totally turned the case around. So we're, we're doing this before anybody else has done it. So there are basically no rules on what can be uploaded to the various sites. So we had originally uploaded our DNA profile that we had to both Family Tree DNA and to GEDmatch, which are the two traditional sites. And we had we had matches that are like the one that we have in with the little girl from Bearbrook. They're in the 60s. So you're a long way out from solving anything. So we'd actually had tried to build some trees and we actually had built a couple but they, were, they weren't connecting to anything else, and you needed to be connecting the trees. So I had an account at MyHeritage, and so I said to Steve, you know, I can upload the file to MyHeritage. Shall we go ahead and see if we can get any better matches in there? And so I uploaded the file, and there were two matches that were, one was a second cousin match, and one was a second cousin once removed. They were actually a mother and daughter all the rest of the matches were like the ones we had at Family Tree DNA and Jed Match. There were just these two matches that were absolutely amazing. And so once you have a second cousin match, you can pretty much say that, that you've solved the case. There has to be a lot that goes wrong if you can't solve it at that point. I mean, things can go wrong, but hopefully they won't. So in this case, when we started building out the tree, we realized that the great-grandparents in this case were actually the same as the great-great-grandparents that we'd identified in the tree that we had built for one of the matches from the family tree DNA match. So suddenly we had solved the case, basically. Wow. Because once you've connected the two, the person that you're looking for is a descendant of the common ancestor. And so now all, and I'll put the all in quotes, all you have to do is build down from that common ancestor and then somehow figure out amongst those descendants who your suspect is. In this case, it was kind of interesting. We actually did a consensual sample just to make sure that we were actually on the right track. Mm-hmm. And so Paul approached a woman that we thought would be, would be fairly closely related, and she agreed to test. And so uh, the Kit got turned around really fast. I mean, they did an amazing job at Family Tree DNA turning this around. And so we were able to get our match results back fairly quickly. It was another second cousin match. And this time we additionally had an X chromosome match. Now, this is really exciting because men only have one X chromosome. And so when you have an X match like that, you know that you're matching with one of the maternal lines. So we knew that this person then had to be matching him through one of his maternal lines, and we hadn't known that before. We hadn't known which side of the tree we were dealing with. But secondly, it allowed me to eliminate some of the candidates that we had who could not possibly have an X match. So at this stage, we'd actually only had nine suspects. I mean, this was amazing. This was the first time it had ever been a suspect list. 
And now with the X-match information, I was able to cut that suspect list down to six names. Two of the names on there were D'Angelo. <laughs> but of course, we didn't, didn't know at that point that he was going to be our guy. We thought he might be from, from other information. But one of the other pieces of information that I did have is I had, from two sources, determined that he had blue eyes. And blue eyes are kind of interesting. There is one specific SNP that if you have blue eyes, you have to have that SNP. And so it turns out that he had that SNP both. There was a utility on the GEDmatch site, and there was also another utility at a company called Prometheus. And they actually, you can, anybody can run their DNA through there. It's a small charge, I think it's at $10, $15. And you can look at, you know, various diseases that you might carry alleles for and so on. So anyway, from both of those sites, uh, I determined that he had supposedly had blue eyes. So the FBI then pulled the DMV records for the six guys. Only one's got blue eyes. Awesome. And that was, that was Joseph D'Angelo. So, so prior I to... Find, so I send an email to Paul and to Steve, and I get a phone call next morning from, from Steve saying, how sure are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm kind of, I'm really confused because I figure they've got the same information that I do. Why are they asking me how sure I am? It turns out that they actually didn't have the same information I had. They had some other information that they hadn't shared with me. They had actually had a phenotype done uh, some years before, and that phenotype had in indicated that he had green eyes and ruled out blue. So they all thought that we were looking for somebody with green eyes. I'm the only one who knew we were looking for somebody with blue eyes. And apparently, actually, Anne-Marie Schubert, who was the, the DA on, on this case, she apparently she gave a presentation at some point called Looking for the Green-Eyed Monster. Um, wow. So, so now, so then I, you know, when, I, when I finally learned that information, I realized that, yeah, I could see why Steve was, yeah, you know, queer yeah. as to whether or not I had the right guy or not. Oh, gosh. I call that the box truck syndrome when somebody's says something, you're out and going, and that's the DC sniper. Everybody's looking for this mythical box truck, and it turns out to be the uh, blue caprice, um, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, they're all looking in the wrong, because they focus, they fixate on it, and because they think mm -hmm. it's valid information. Wow. So uh, how much of a crimp did that put in the investigation, or are you able to write that ship right away? Well, I didn't know that information, so mm -hmm. I'm going with what I have. And I had from two different sources that he had blue eyes. And I, I didn't learn until long after the fact that they had this other information. They would not share any of the information sure. that they had with me at all. Every, everything that I knew about the case, I got from reading newspapers. Wow. Now, how did they go down the wrong trail on the green, the green-eyed monster? How did that that happen? The phenotype, but um... it, well, it didn't ever play in because we didn't get to that point of ever trying to use that data. I mean, obviously, they tried to use it previously. Uh, when they were screening people. But for our particular project, it never came into play. At least as far as I know, it didn't. I don't know whether they had tested anybody who had green eyes. And unbeknownst to me, that's possible, I suppose. Wow, okay. But as far as I know, it didn't, yeah. Wow. So just for, for the audience's sake, to understand, to really understand the, the Golden State Killer case, they had DNA from the crime scenes, Correct. Correct. And so, but the problem is they didn't have a reference sample. They didn't have a sample directly from, and, and this is the case with, boy, just lots of, lots of cold cases where they may have DNA 
from the the crime scene, but they have to have something to compare it to. Right. And so the the genealogical route, the, the reason this is is solving so many cases right now is because there's so many investigations where they'll they'll have DNA, it's ready to and this will kind of work with fingerprinting as well, where you may have evidence from the crime scene, but you have to have something to compare it to in order mm-hmm. to actually narrow it down. And so the the potential that they had of suspects was in the thousands, from what I understand, prior to narrowing it down to the six that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, well, for the CODIS system and for you know anything that was being done, yeah, you had to have something to compare it to. And of course, doing the genealogy obviates the need for having something to compare it to because you can figure out who it is by basically triangulating off of the information that you have and figuring out that it has to be a certain person or it has to be a certain family. I mean, we quite often end up either with cousins or with with brothers, since most of the time the perpetrator is male. But we're we're zeroing in, you know, right on an exact family as to as to who it is. Yeah. And that's so once, once they narrowed that. it down, did they actually get then, then they they actually got a, like a buckle swab from this guy, correct? So what they did, so I was not involved in this. So everything went quiet. I didn't know anything else until the day after he'd been arrested. I mean, obviously I'm a civilian, so I wasn't, I wasn't privy to anything. What I understand they did is they went out, they had him under surveillance and followed him to a shopping mall. And after he went into the mall, they swabbed the door handle on his car. And that came back at whatever gazillions to one that it could be anybody else. So they were pretty sure they got the right guy, but they'd been doing this for a long time. So they decided to do a second sample. <laughs> and so they then got a tissue out of his trash. And same thing, the odds came back gazillion to one, it could be anybody else. And so at that point he was arrested. Right. Yeah, and I've then, actually seen, that point, uh, then, you, then you do another swab, then you do the buccal swab to mm-hmm. make sure you've arrested the right guy. So, yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they have to make sure that once it goes to trial, that the defense can't get all this thrown out because that would ruin the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's so fascinating. Tom, go ahead. Yeah, I had a question now, Dr. Peter Speth. He took two samples at the time, which was, uh, he was a bit of an outlier for doing that. I guess he had the foresight to realize these sexual assault kits would be would be coming into vogue and possibly knew about. I'm taking some guesses here how that came about, but wasn't he one of the reasons why they were able to put this all together? Am I correct on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.